Let's take our Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings chapter 10. Glad to have you with us this morning. That includes you who are watching on the internet too. Second Kings chapter 10, we left off in the middle of verse 30, so I'm going to read verse 30 again and pick up where it is the most logical place to do so. And the Lord said unto Jehu, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart. Thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. As we learned last week and the week before, Jehu took out the house of Ahab, their worshipers. He broke down their images, broke down the house of Baal. So in doing this thing, God commended him. He said, good boy. He commended Jehu for executing that which was right in God's sight. It was right in God's sight that the house of Ahab be cut off. He had told the prophet that would happen, and now it happened. But as the next verse is going to show us, Jehu had a chance to do something else that was profitable. Something that would have caused God to say to him, Thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the church of the golden calf, according to all that was in mine heart. Do you know why that's not in the scripture? Because Jehu didn't take care of his business. So let's look at verse 31, because Jehu left this undone. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. He left it undone. He didn't depart from it. He didn't cause Israel to depart from the sins of Jeroboam. He had a passive response to this church of the golden calf As we learn back in verse 29, these golden calves were left up in Bethel and Dan. After all of that, he went through to take out the house of Baal. He left the church of the golden calf alone. And so in doing the good thing, God said, that's good. You executed what was right in my sight. But verse 31 tells us even though he did that, he didn't walk with all his heart. Toward the Lord God. In fact, his passive response to the church of the golden calf was as bad as Jeroboam's active response. That is, what Jehu left undone, what he failed to do, was just as bad as what Jeroboam did actively. In fact, I'm going to Return back to 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 32. And I want you to listen for some action verbs that are contained in this passage. 
because this is about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. Satan's a great counterfeiter. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Did you hear the action verbs? Ordained, offered, did, made, and placed. These all required action on Jeroboam's part. So his sin was an active sin. It consisted of action. Whereas Jehu's sin was passive. It consisted of inaction. Because it's not written anywhere that Jehu offered to this golden calf or that he made it or built it or that he ordained a feast to it on any day of the month. Yet, he just left it alone. And his epitaph here, his obituary, mentions him in the same breath as wicked Jeroboam. He said he departed not. From the sins of Jeroboam. For the righteous thing that Jehu did do, his blessing was that four generations of his seed, of his descendants, would sit on the throne of Israel. That was a promise God made to him. Can you imagine what would have been said about him if he had obeyed God in this matter? Well, he didn't. We don't know what else this verse may have entailed. That is, what else did he do to not fully walk with the Lord God with all his heart? We don't know what all he didn't do. We just know he didn't do it because the Bible says so. And so it brings the question to our minds, if you're a Christian, what rewards have we forfeited by living our Christian lives apart from God, apart from his counsel, even in a season. We've learned about the safety and security of abiding in God's word, even when the world is on fire around us like it is right now. We've benefited from the study of the Proverbs in that area too. And we're benefiting in the book of Hosea and Second Kings. All of them teach us how to live and how not to live. But it seems like in spite of the security and the safety that are found in abiding in God's word, that many people think they have a better way. I sure did. So I'm right there with you if you say, well, yeah, that, that was me or that is me. I was right there with you. I come to church and sing hymns. Might even pray and study the Bible, but in some areas, they, we, have not followed the Lord with all our hearts. I'll tell you, there were times in my life when I didn't follow the Lord with all my heart, and I paid a price, and I'll never be able to recover it. I won't be able to get that time back, that opportunity back. I won't be able to undo that sin 
That's why I had to rely on what Jesus did for me. He's the only one who could put it away. I know I'm secure in salvation because of Jesus. But I can't get back those wasted days and months and sometimes even years where I tried it my way and Jehu tried it his way and he can't get that back. And after what God said to Jehu in verse 30, where he said that thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel because he had executed that which was right in God's sight. After all of that, Jehu still took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. So let's examine those words. That word took and heed. Those are the same Hebrew word. They go together. And they mean to keep or observe. I used this verse Wednesday night when I taught on the word keep, on the word preserve in Proverbs. But I'll use it again this morning because the first time this word, this Hebrew word for keep or took or heed is used in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Where it says, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. In order to dress and keep the garden, Adam had to take action, didn't he? So we're talking about Jehu not taking action and that being mentioned as his sin. Adam had to take action. He couldn't just sit there and hope everything went according to plan. He couldn't just hang on to the Garden of Eden into which God put him. He couldn't just hang on to it as a, a possession. He had something to do. God put him there to dress and to keep it. And it's the same principle we learned about the word departed when it came to the sins of Jehu. If a friend asked me to keep his dog, and by the way, I'm going to just tell you no, but if a friend asked me to keep, I raise dogs, I've repaired all of the damage they did to my yard, to my water hose, I've got days worth of stories for you, and I'm sure you do too, and I love dogs, but at this season in my life, I'm very content to have a yard that is whole, to have a garden that is not dug up. And I could go on and on. But if I had a friend and he said, would you keep my dog while I'm gone? Would it be enough for me just to make sure that the dog didn't leave the backyard? No. I have to take action while that dog is in my care. I have to give the dog food and water and play with him and throw the ball and do things that the owner would have done. Not let him sleep in my bed, but everything else. If there's a hole in the fence, I have to take action and patch it up. Why? So the dog doesn't get out and go get run over, and I have to tell my friend when he comes home from his vacation, your dog's dead. But imagine if my friend came home and his dog were dead because I gave it neither food nor water. And if I were to say to him, you know, you just told me to keep your dog. I didn't give him away. I kept him. He's still back there in the backyard. 
But I would have been a failure as a keeper, wouldn't I? In fact, I did not keep my friend's dog, if that's what I did, because I didn't take action when it was needed. And Jehu had to take action to walk in the, the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, but he did not take that action. Just like he did not take action when he left the golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. Now look back in your text there in verse 31. It said, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. With all his heart. That is with the totality of his inner man. Not with a divided heart like Saul. See, Saul had a divided heart. King Saul. In 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 8... 1 Kings 14, verse 8, you may remember a story about God sending a man named Ahijah, the Shilonite, to tell this wicked king Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Thou hast not been as my servant David, who, did, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes. And by the way, this is a different Jeroboam than the king Brother Fulton taught about last week. You may have heard him say Jeroboam, and he was a good king and all that, and you might have thought, huh? That's not what Sunday school said. Different king, okay? Different father, different king, just like there's more than one John in the Bible, and there's more than one Jehoiada in the Bible, and, and so forth. There's more than one Jeroboam. This is the wicked Jeroboam we're talking about. Different fathers, different time periods, different kings. But let's be clear about what this phrase, with all his heart, does not mean. It does not mean that David walked sinlessly before the Lord. It does not. We know he didn't. We read about his sin in the matter of Bathsheba, who was the wife of another man, and whom he watched bathing, and he lusted after her. He had her brought to his quarters, and he committed adultery with her. And when she was found with child, he called her husband Uriah the Hittite from the battlefield, and this faithful man would not go in unto his wife. He slept at the door of his king because his men were being uh, killed and were killing on the battlefield. And so David set up a plot to have Uriah return to the front line and have everybody else retreat, and Uriah was killed. Now, you don't, don't think that when David walked with all his heart toward God that he never sinned. We know he did, and God punished him for that. That child died. And, and David suffered. Greatly, David was not allowed to build the temple because of the blood he had shed. God told him that. But in all of that, David's heart was not divided. Listen to what he wrote in Psalm chapter 119, verses 9 through 11. You've probably heard this before. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. The psalmist said, 
Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Now that's an undivided heart. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So in that psalm, in those two verses, David said, he wrote, I've sought you with my whole heart. Don't let me wander from your commandments. So what does that tell us? That a person who seeks God with his whole heart still in his flesh has the tendency to wander away from God's commandments. And I know that people are, uh, some people are frightful about whether their salvation is really secure. And then they'll say, no, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus. And then they'll read something like uh, we read about Jehu or about David, and they'll say, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not. And it's just, it's, it's the devil's treadmill, as pastor says. And he just never lets him off of it. But I think this ought to settle it for you. David realized that even though he sought God with his whole heart, and even though he had hid God's word in his heart to keep him from sinning, his flesh was prone to wander from God's commandments. And to wander means to err. It means to be deceived or sometimes even to sin through ignorance. When a Christian sins, and here's the difference. Here's one of the differences. When a Christian sins, it's a big deal to him. It's a big deal to her. It bothers you. You don't try to say, well, it's not a big deal God understands. You say, oh, no. Your heart's broken. You know you did wrong, and you want to make it right. You remember that Jesus died for that sin. And the lost person, on the other hand, may have feelings of, of remorse or guilt, but they're not Godward. They're usually because they got caught. They don't want to face consequences. They say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, when they're not really sorry. They're sorry they got caught. And in fact, if they can avoid the consequences, they will. They don't face them. They have no desire to repent toward God. I remember a, a pastor telling, he was a lawyer too. Now, what an interesting combination that was. But he was just a straight shooter. And he said that he was at the courthouse one day in his particular area, it was up north, and that a gentleman had been arrested for shoplifting some meat. And uh, so he was to appear in court, and the man didn't have an attorney. And so the court appointed this lawyer slash pastor to be this man's attorney in the and so they had a conversation, the, the attorney and this defendant, before a hearing. And so the pastor said, would, would you like a lawyer to represent you? And he said, no, I don't need a lawyer. He said, I broke the law, and I'm here to confess and to get my punishment. And the pastor was taken aback, and he said, well, uh, okay, I, you know, I'm glad you're honest, but would you... Would you like, you know, why did you steal? What did you steal? And he went through all that with him, and he found out that the man stole because he was hungry. 
And so the lawyer was going to try to help him out with the sentencing, maybe get a reduced fine or, or jail sentence. And the man said, no, I don't want that. I did wrong. And I'll take whatever the court gives me. And while being amazed, this pastor lawyer was also very encouraged that sometimes when people do wrong, they're not trying to escape the consequences. They know they did wrong. And see, that's what a Christian ought to be like. That's how a Christian ought to be. When we do wrong, we're not trying to escape consequences. That doesn't mean we embrace them and enjoy them and say, oh, this is going to be great. No, it's, it's bad. The lost person will use hook or crook to try to avoid what's coming to them. Now, what we need to do is just pray what David did. With my whole heart I have sought thee, and know that to cleanse our way, we are to take heed to God's word and with our whole heart to follow him so we don't wander from the commandments. Can you imagine if you can still wander from his commandments by following him with your whole heart because you have this flesh? What about people who don't follow him with their whole heart? They're going to wander from the commandments. They're not going to abide in them. Now let's look down in verse 32 in our text. In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. That means cut them off. And Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel. And you've learned, I think, if you've been here a while, the word coast doesn't always mean the, the beach. It means the borders, within all the borders of Israel. Verse 33, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites. From Aurora, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. So as God has done, so will he do. His anger against Israel was manifested here by cutting Israel short, by cutting them off, using a Gentile king, Hazael, to smite them. Hazael, if you remember, was the king of Syria. And the way he got to be king was he went back and he smothered his king with a wet cloth. He, did, he waterboarded him till he died. And uh, Ben-Hadad, that king, was already sick. And so that's how Hazael rose to the throne. In 2 Kings chapter 8, I'll just refresh your memory about that. Second Kings chapter 8, King Ben-Hadad had sent Hazael to Elisha to find out whether Ben-Hadad was going to recover from this illness that he had. And during that conversation with Elisha, Elisha began to weep. And here's what followed in that verse. This was verse 12. It's 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 12. So now Elisha is weeping while he's talking with Hazael. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. So there is the amplified version of what would happen right here in 
verses 32 and 33, it simply says God began to cut Israel short and Hazael smote them. Well, this is what the smiting consisted of. Because this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Elisha made to Hazael about what Hazael himself was going to do to Israel. And I'm sure at the time Hazael said, uh, oh, no way. No way. I, I came to Elisha to see if my king was going to be okay. It, it can't be me who's going to turn around and show ingratitude toward Israel and Israel's God by smiting them. But he would. Verse 34 now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And yes, those acts of might are written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. When I think about a dead person's obituary, because I read lots of them, I think about all the wonderful things they're families have to say about them. And in a few cases, and you've perhaps seen this, Joe Blow died on this date. No services are planned, and that's it. They're just going to stick him in the ground or whatever they're going to do with him. No obituary, no services planned, nothing. I've read obituaries of people who died in car crashes that I investigated and some of those people, many of them, were drunk whenever the crash happened. But the obituary never mentions it. Some of the people committed suicide. But normally that's not put in an obituary. Only that the person passed or died. And we do that for the people who might read about that. We do that out of uh, common courtesy Compassion. A truthful obituary would be absolutely depressing, wouldn't it? First of all, it would take you forever to read it because it would have every good and bad deed a person committed in their entire life. And that's a long time for some of us, isn't it? There are two reasons that I don't want a long obituary. One, I don't want my friends and loved ones to know every single good or bad thing I did. I just want them to know what Jesus did. And another reason, and you need to write this down, funeral homes charge by the word. And you all know how thrifty I am with money. I don't want my estate being billed for a long obituary. It was enough that Jehu's obituary was written as we read it. He was better than some kings. He was not as good as others. But for Jehu and for you and for me, it won't be what our obituary says that determines our entrance into the kingdom of heaven anyway. It'll be Jesus' obituary. That's the one I'm counting on. That's the one I've put all my hope in. What's Jesus' obituary? That he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless, perfect life in both thought and deed, and did so many good works, as the Apostle John wrote, that he supposed the world could not contain all of the books if you were to write them down. 
He rose again. He died for our sins and he rose again from the grave. And he has scheduled a date and time on which he will gather his people, punish the wicked, and redeem all of his creation back unto himself. And that's the obituary that matters to me. Because in Christ, that's my obituary. That I lived with him and died with him and rose again with him and positionally am seated at the right hand of the Father and will practically be so when he comes back to get me. As he rose from the grave, I'll rise from the grave. Verse 35. And Jehu slept with his fathers, and we know that means he died. And they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. As the other kings did, Jehu died, and he was buried in his homeland. His son reigned in his stead just as God had promised, because he said, under the fourth generation of your seed, you're going to sit on the throne of Israel. God didn't cut that promise in half. He didn't double it either. He stayed true to his promise. Verse 36, And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was twenty and eight years. Twenty-eight years of zeal for the Lord mixed with half-heartedly serving the Lord. Now, that's still not a good testimony. It's better than some, but it's not as good as others. It would be like a a 40-year-old man who boasts about his high school football accomplishments, supposing they will overshadow his present incompetence and slothfulness. It's not very impressive, is it? So let's learn from Jehu rather than looking down on him, and follow the Lord with our whole heart. Chapter 11. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. Now this verse takes us back a little bit to the events that happened in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 27. A lot of things happened after that, and now Athaliah is mentioned here. In 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 27, Ahaziah, who was the king, was slain in battle by Jehu's men. He was killed. And Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, you may remember she was the granddaughter of Omri, who was an evil king of Israel, who reigned for 12 years. She was the daughter of Ahab, an even more evil king. We saw her name one time before this. Back in 2 Kings eight twenty six, and I'm just refreshing your memory here. You don't have to write all that down if you don't want. 2 Kings eight twenty six, when we were told that Ahaziah began his reign of one year. He was on the throne one year, not very long. Verse 2, but Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. Verse 1 is a terrible verse as far as what happened. Athaliah is mad that Ahaziah died, and so what does she do? She kills every child she can find who might possibly inherit the throne. Now that's just a wicked woman right there. That's wicked, wicked. 
And then we see the word but in verse 2. But tells us that not all is lost here. When the word but follows bad news, then that means there's probably good news on the other side of it. There's hope and encouragement. And this faithful woman, who we'll just call Aunt Jehoshaphat, because that's who she was to Joash, Aunt Jehoshaphat, took her nephew, Joash, and hid him from Athaliah. said that she hid him in a bedchamber. Now, that's an inner room. An inner room hiding this child in the house, in the very place where Athaliah ruled and had access to, that's like hiding him in plain sight, isn't it? It would seem to be a dangerous place to hide a child. But you know, when I read this, I was reminded of how God used a woman to hide her son in a very dangerous place back in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. Exodus 2 verse 1, which says, And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the riverbank. The flags are the cattails for us in East Texas. By the river, river's brink. Hiding this Hebrew child, which is what this was, this is a Levite baby boy, near the Pharaoh was dangerous enough. But when she put him in a basket in the water, all kinds of things come to mind, don't they? What if the wind and the waves tump the basket over and the poor little baby drowns? Or what if one of those Nile crocodiles decides he wants a baby Levite for his breakfast today? He could eat that whole basket and child in one bite. But God had a plan to protect that baby. Because the daughter of Pharaoh, who found him, who could have also killed him, she could have said, hey, my dad said all these Hebrew baby boys, when they're born, we're supposed to have them killed, and I'm going to take this one out. She could have done that, but she found compassion for him in her own heart. And that royal daughter entrusted that baby back into the care of his own mother, not knowing it was his mother. She, was, she nursed him and she raised him in the palace. And that child's name was Moses. And God would use him greatly to deliver his people from bondage. Joash was also hidden and protected by a woman, this being his aunt. And just as his protection here reminds us of Moses, it also reminds me of another baby in the Bible Another baby who was hidden in a very unlikely place for his own protection. Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15. Matthew 2, 13 through 15 says, and this is about Joseph and Mary. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt of all places, And be thou there until I bring thee word, 
For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now listen, Egypt was not a friend of Israel's. In Egypt, for over 400 years, the children of Israel were kept in bondage and cruelly treated. And during the days of King Herod, He became angry because he heard that a certain child was born, and that being Jesus. So he commanded all of the Hebrew children, two years of age and younger, all the male children, to be slain. And it was for this reason that God told the parents of this certain baby to take him into Egypt to hide him from the wrath of Herod. And this baby was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in all three examples that we just looked at, Moses, Jehu, Jesus. In all three examples, we saw that there was a wicked person who was trying to kill all the little children. Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill all the Hebrew males as soon as they were born. And that, by the way, is just a few minutes before liberal Democrats have them killed. Just on the other side of the womb. But as Exodus 1.17 tells us about those Hebrew midwives who had been ordered by the Pharaoh to kill all newborn males, Exodus 1.17 says about those Hebrew midwives, they feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them. And in our text in Joash's day, Athaliah sought the death of all of the the seed royal, all of the royal children. But God used a faithful woman to deliver Joash from certain death. One who also loved God and disobeyed Athaliah's command. In fact, there are actually two faithful women here in our text. Aunt Jehosheba and this unnamed nurse who would nurse the child. Didn't have a name. If her name was important, God would have told us. But he was important to her, or she was important to him, to God. Now let's look in verse 3. And he, that's Joash, was with her hid in the house of the Lord six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. So from the bedchamber to the house of the Lord, Joash was taken and he was hidden there for six years. And I love that the house of the Lord was a safe place for the one whom God would use to rule over his people. He wasn't taken to a military fortress. Now you would think if you wanted to keep somebody alive, you would take them to the most secure military installation in the free world. You would hide them perhaps at a black ops site where nobody would know where they are. God foresaw and ordained that this little boy would be taken into the house of the Lord. And during that six years that Athaliah reigned, it must have been a bloody reign. Because if she would kill little children in her unholy anger, nothing was off limits. 
Verse 4, in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him in the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. Something is about to happen in this seventh year. And if we remember lessons from our other studies in the Bible, we know the number seven is the number of divine perfection. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. His work was finished. The children of Israel marched around the city of Jericho, around the walls, seven times on the seventh day. And Jehoiada is a name you'll see several other times in the Old Testament. And it's normally the name of a priest. And in this case, as far as I can tell, Jehoiada was the high priest. Because down in verse 9, he was called the priest. And then over in chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Then King Jehoash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests. So it sets him apart from the other priests. So I think the evidence is pretty strong that in our text he was the high priest. And then it says that he called, in verse 4, rulers over hundreds. And these would be military leaders. Listen, Jehoiada took a big risk by bringing all of these military leaders into the house of the Lord to see Joash. Number one... What if one of these military leaders would have said, uh-uh, I'm telling Athaliah. Then the plan would have been foiled. Or what if they would have been brought into the house of the Lord and one of them would have said, aha, there's one more seed royal, Joash. Let's get him, guys, and killed him. So Jehoiada took a big risk in doing this. He swore to these men an oath, and presumably that oath was that they would faithfully defend this king to death. And I'll tell you, just looking at human nature and Athaliah, it's doubtful to me that any of these military leaders were in love with her. She didn't sound like somebody that would cause a man to swoon. Killing little babies, boy, that's ugly right there. I don't care what you look like. You kill little babies, you're an ugly person. And whatever else she did. So now something good is about to happen. Let's look at verse 5. <clears throat> and he commanded them, that is Jehoiada commanded these rulers of the hundreds, saying, this is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. So one-third of the men were to guard the king's house, meaning the palace. And even though Athaliah lived there, that was not hers. She was out of place. She played king of the mountain, didn't she? And she thinks because she's in the palace, well, then I must be the king or the queen. She usurped authority. It was not her authority to usurp. And then verse 6, and we'll close. And a third part shall be at the gate of Sur, 
and a third part at the gate behind the guard, so shall ye keep the watch of the house that it be not broken down. The word sur means turning aside. And this gate was connected with the house of the Lord somehow. Some of the Jewish historians believe that it was the eastern gate because anybody or anything defiled could not come through that eastern gate into the courtyard or into the temple. But in any case, the purpose of this group of people was to prevent the Lord's house from being destroyed during what was about to happen. And although we don't see Levites specifically named in this group, they had to have been in the group because there are certain places in the temple and certain things, certain jobs in the temple that could not be done by anyone who was not a Levite. So they were going to preserve that, no doubt. And with that, we'll close and we'll pick up with this arrangement next week in our study. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the faithful attendees, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit who is our teacher, who takes this word, transmits it to our inner man, helps us to meditate upon it, to recall it, and to live by it. As we go into the next hour, bless those who come, bless our pastor as he preaches, the singers as we sing, and Lord, may everything be done to honor and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.